80,000 hours. That is how much the average human will spend working in their lifetime. I don't know about you, but that is a figure I'm profoundly uncomfortable with. And it only gets worse. A report published by Business Insider states that 80% of people are dissatisfied with their jobs. Americans typically work eight different jobs before they're 30, and 25% of employees say work is their main source of stress, and 40% say that their job is, quote, very or extremely stressful. So today, I thought it'd be fun to address the role that work has in our life, because statistically speaking, we spend one-third of our life working. I got my first job at 14 years old, working in a warehouse that distributed boating supplies. I was also the youngest and only non-convict working there, so I was often the recipient of playful pranks, intimidating behavior, and general harassment. As a result, I would often retreat to a quiet corner of the warehouse so as not to be seen. I didn't care if we were behind on orders or if the inventory hadn't been taken or if the truck needed to be loaded. I was completely indifferent. Now, contrast that with one of my favorite jobs. During college, I was working 10 to 12 hour overnight shifts as an EMT at a level one trauma center in New York. And I loved it. I was sharp, assertive. I knew the process and the procedures and I was always learning. I got addicted to it. It wasn't the overtime or the night differential, it was the energy. I was needed, I had purpose, and I oriented most of my life around my time there. It was a preoccupation with my occupation. It was for all intents and purposes an idol in my life. Now, that might be a strong or strange word to use to describe something like a job, but I hope the notion rings true for you because in the most extreme cases, this is how we classify our work ethic. We diminish or dismiss it as unimportant, or we elevate it and inflate it to be solely important, indifference or idolatry. And ironically, the common thread that exists between these two is that they are both tied to our self-worth. We define ourselves by what we will or will not do. So I'd like to explore this problem together particularly through the lenses of Scripture, because Scripture has plenty to say about it, beginning in, well, in the beginning. Let's take a moment to clarify the importance of goodness in our work and why we need wisdom in it. In the creation narrative, God rests on the seventh day as a way of ordering the created order, and this rest is a response to the satisfaction of a job well done. But immediately following this, God begins the process of onboarding us into that order. Genesis chapter 2. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams of water came up from the earth watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. 
you might find yourself saying, I stay at home or I fly a desk for a living and I hate gardening. So how does this apply to me? Scripture often uses agricultural or architectural illustrations when describing work because that was a majority of the work needed for the ancient world to survive. Although the physical demand might be different, hand plowing a field or laying mud bricks can be just as exhausting as raising children, your shift, waiting tables, or a boardroom presentation. People are still people, no matter the era. So in our modern context, it's important to import the meaning of the message. We, you and I, have purpose inside and outside of our profession. Yes, we are called to work, but that work isn't what we do, but rather how we do it. Fulfilling our work by being faithful in the big and the small. Work is blessed for it brings us closer to our creator. God designed and destined work for us. Since the very beginning, humans have had a co-labor relationship with the divine. God partners with humanity to accomplish good works. This is evident throughout the whole of Scripture and the Great Commission. And when we understand this, we stop just managing tasks, and we begin to recognize the transcendent. But it's our own nature that corrupts our calling and Left to ourselves, we define our worth by our work. In the creation narrative, it was man who made the decision to overrule the guidance of God. And as a result, we made work our purpose instead of finding purpose in our work. This is precisely why we need wisdom in our work. But what does that look like? Those who work wisely develop characteristics. Here are just a few examples. First, the wise are ready. The wise are ready. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 29. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. To be ready in work means a preparedness. We know the task at hand or we're learning to get better at it. We're attentive. We keep our skills up. We handle changes and transitions as adeptly as we can and we plan for various scenarios. By doing so, we work honorably. We also do the simple things like going to bed on time because whether you're operating heavy machinery or creating floral arrangements, you work best when you're rested. Now, being ready isn't exclusively a biblical concept, but it is a wise one, and that's what we're called to. Second, the wise are resourceful. The wise are resourceful. We live in a resource-dependent society, and because of that, it's wise to steward those resources well, from the money we earn to the time we take off. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 19. Those who work their land will have abundant food, but those who chase fantasies will have their fill of poverty. Now, I think it's worth acknowledging that in ancient culture, provision was divinely gifted and poverty was divine punishment, and regrettably, the book of Proverbs is not exempt from that worldview by not factoring in mismanagement, systematic issues, discrimination, or hazards. But even if you find yourself in an unfavorable circumstance, the premise remains. Resourcefulness is a wise practice. So personally, earn, live, and give. And professionally, 
Respect the role you have by making good decisions. Bring a savviness to your position. When we understand our divine value, we respect the resources we have. Third, the wise are reputable. The wise are reputable. Proverbs chapter 22. A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. There are things that I like to tinker with. Cars, housing repairs, and on occasion, pest control. If I think I can do it on my own, I'll attempt it. If I'm stuck, I'll consult YouTube. But if I'm in a jam, I know I'll need a professional. And I don't know about you, but there have been times when I have noticed inconsistencies in some of those fields. Now, let me be clear. I'm not condemning those professions. I'm simply saying that the quality and value can vary greatly depending on ethics. However, if I trust you and I'm confident in your skills and reputation, I'm interested and even willing to pay a premium if needed. When it comes to your work, are you viewed the same way? How are you perceived? Do people want to work with you? Can you be trusted? I'm not suggesting perfection, but rather principle. We do not work to become reputable, but we become reputable by our work. And in doing so, we serve as an example towards betterment. This is why those who work wisely are reputable. And lastly, the wise are risky. The wise are risky. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 16. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. Being risky often has negative connotations. So let's clarify by stating that this risk isn't something illegal or immoral. This is a risk for good. One that leverages opportunity over inactivity. This is often misunderstood as a biblical principle, but perhaps the greatest example of this comes from Jesus himself in the telling of the parable of the talents. A master puts his servants in charge of his goods while he is away. The three servants are given a talent or a unit of currency. Two of them put their talents to work and double the investment, but the third buries it in the ground so as not to risk it. And when the master returns, he is pleased with the two servants, but angry with the third for his inaction. One scholar postulates that the labor involved for the servant to dig a hole and bury the talent actually took more effort than if he had gone to the bankers. And the meaning of this parable? We are all given something, a talent, if you will. Risking that talent means bringing our mission to the marketplace. Idleness or inactivity are not rewarded. Instead, we live in such a way that honors what we've been given so that our giver says, well done. Working wisely means we take risks for good. So, ready, resourceful, reputable, and risky. These are the qualities of those who work wisely. But what about those who do not? Does wisdom literature have anything to say on that? 
There is a character, or rather a caricature, referenced over 10 times throughout the book of Proverbs. You know him as the sluggard. Now, I'd like to make something clear. I don't want to equate the sluggard with an actual slug, because I actually think that slugs work really hard. If you've ever seen one trying to cross your patio in the middle of the night, you know that he's using every single ounce of energy to get across that thing as fast as possible. The sluggard is a different creature. And I must confess that I've had seasons of sluggardry in my life. Perhaps we all have. Here are a few highlights. A sluggard's appetite is never filled, which is also what I tell my doctor at my annual checkup. A sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He will not even bring it back to his mouth. Sluggards do not plow in season. The cravings of a sluggard will be the death of him because his hands refuse to work. The sluggard is the very opposite of the wise worker and as a result is unprepared, unresourceful, disreputable, and risk-averse. Sluggards do not care to do their job well. They do not respect or resource their role. They are unaware of their reputation, and they will never take a risk that imperils themselves. And perhaps the saddest part is this. All of these choices are made for the comfort and convenience of the sluggard, yet they are still dissatisfied. Their unfulfillment drives their unwise decisions. The biggest problem with the sluggard is that he thinks himself wise and, as a result, he refuses to be motivated. He no longer sees the value of work. And while the temptation is to condemn the sluggard, perhaps we're meant to compare his behavior to our own. If 2020 revealed anything to the Western world, it's that we are a work-dominated society. Many of us were forced to reorient our lives and our conditions. I raise this point because if we are not wise or if we imagine ourselves too wise, we may overlook the implications of change. What were you feeling last year? Challenged? Stressed? Disheartened? Those are powerful emotions that take time to work through. And if we're not careful, we might find ourselves having more in common with the sluggard than we like, no longer seeing the value of our work. How can we expect to work in service to our neighbor or our family or our community if we can't even see the value of work for ourselves? This is why the sluggard is a danger, not only to our livelihood, but to our soul. The sluggard is a soul-damaging sentiment because it removes the goodness of God from our work. There is also another caricature that exists in our culture, one that is arguably more prevalent in successful professions and is harder to discern. His actions are usually celebrated and he conceals himself in popular pithy statements like either you run the day or the day runs you. Greed is good, or I am the master of my fate. Here is a question for our consideration. If one proudly declares an unflinching devotion to their work, pouring any and all available time, energy, and effort into it, does that make them the master or the slave? 
This might be a hard concept to confront, particularly in the Bay Area, the fourth largest economy in the country, tech capital of the world, a leader in science, medicine, and biotech. And even if you're not in those fields, you're probably a few steps above the average U.S. worker in earnings or assets just by living here. The sad reality of human slavery has always existed, but now we live in an era where, metaphorically speaking, we can enslave ourselves to our work. While the sluggard may lack motivation, a slave is bound to it. There is no work-life balance because work is life. They serve their job tirelessly because it's who they are and maybe all that they have left. And again, our inclination might be to condemn those who are subjugated to their work, but it is far better to ask, have I allowed my work to enslave me? If you're like me and feel a twinge of conviction, then you might be thinking, that's ridiculous. I can quit anytime I want. To which I would say, ask someone who's been through a 12-step program to tell you what that phrase really means. This is the danger when we draw our self-worth from our net worth. We become slaves to our selfhood. And just like the sluggard, we remove the goodness of God from our work because we've made it about ourselves. Is work an investment? Of course. But so is our soul. And there's a return on that. Steward it well and we'll reap a reward that cannot be bought or bartered. A deeply rooted fulfillment and purpose. Many a man have met their end working to live instead of living to work. Let the divine define our calling. So, We've discussed God's plan for our work, how to do it wisely, and the perils of the sluggard and the slave. Now, what is our way forward? In closing, God's work-life plan for humanity is the same today as it was in the garden. Partnership. A union of who we are today and who we're meant to be tomorrow. The already and the not yet. When we order our work into its proper context, we take what is strenuous and make it sacred. This is the redemptive nature of God. So our challenge is this, to not become indifferent or idolatrous, to be ready, resourceful, reputable, and risky. Seek the Lord despite your circumstances, especially when you are crushed stressed, overwhelmed, or unmotivated. Whether you own a small business or a successful startup, no matter if you're a CEO or you stay at home, if you drive a big rig or operate a camera, do not allow your work to define your worth or having to choose between sluggard or slave. Have purpose inside and outside of your profession. Work wisely, Give abundantly, for by doing so, you invest in your soul. Live in such a way that at the end of each day, you can trust and rest in the one who says, well done. In a moment, we're gonna receive communion together. This sacrament is typically practiced in the presence of others. So if you're at home or abroad watching right now, know that you are still joined by a body of believers the world over. 
On the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord took bread, and when he had broken it, he gave thanks and said to his disciples, Take, eat. This is my body, broken for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The body of Christ. After they had eaten, in the same manner, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Take and drink. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this in remembrance of me, blood of Christ. Gracious God, we thank you for your infinite wisdom and one that is bestowed on us. We pray, Father, that we will continue to seek you in all things and to draw our worth exclusively from you.